Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricardo Silvestre. And today I bring you the second episode of our mini-series on the future of political debate online. After our last conversation with Miroslav Savidis from Globsec, we talk today about digital platform regulation with Professor Teresa Rodriguez Laeras Balel, and she is an associate professor of commercial law at University Carlos III in Madrid, and also a member of the expert group to the EU Observatory on the online platform economy. So as you can see, we continue in good company as we go into details on how to have a healthy environment for political debate online. And of special importance for today's conversation, it's the recent announcement of a new Digital Services Act by the European Union. This was in fact already a focus in one of our episodes, episode 65 with Jan Penfrat from Edri. But before we start today's conversation, some important points on the Digital Services Act are worthy of mention with a little more detail. For example, the new act proposes that when illegal content is removed from digital platforms, there should be information on the criteria on why that decision was taken. Also, digital companies need to have an internal system to deal with complaints from users in the case of a non-justified removal of contents. And there should be a satisfactory resolution without having to appeal to courts. Also, and as discussed in the last episode, now companies need to have information regarding political ads, particular who is responsible for the content and how that ad reached the user. For larger platforms, measured by the number of users, in particular above 45 million, where Twitter and Facebook easily are included in this criteria, the way that algorithms function need to be more transparent and the user could have the option of changing the algorithm function. Also, there should be a repository of information in the platforms about who buys political ads, what is the reach of those ads, And also, academics and investigators should have access to that data. But one of the most important proposals is the need for a risk analysis of the dangers of overreaching in content moderation, particularly in the suppression of speech and preserving the freedom that relates to political speech. For example, the freedom of expression, the freedom of having an opinion without being harassed by it, while at the same time, maintaining a control of illegal content, for example, incitement to violence or production of hate speech. This equilibrium promises to be hard to achieve and worse than that, difficult to implement. Some examples in the European Union of this complicated consensus are, for example, the Communication Platforms Act in Austria or the Letter of Rights in the Digital Era in Portugal or, for example, a recent intention from the Hungarian Ministry of Justice regarding the platform of political leaders and, I quote, arbitrarily and with no official, transparent and fair proceeding or legal remedy, close quotes. This, of course, is a clear response to the banning of Donald Trump from the platforms of Twitter and Facebook. In fact, as I record this, we just got another terrifying example, this time for our friends in Canada, where a new proposed law aims to include legal speech in illegal content because that speech could be considered to be upsetting or hurtful. In fact, the law also proposes that there should be mandatory reporting of potential harmful content and where the user is responsible for it and that also websites could be blocked because of it. In addition, there will be a 24-hour notice for content takedown, which of course leaves very little space for analysis of that content. 
This, of course, can lead to automatic filtering for content analysis from digital platforms, overblocking to maintain libel protection, and the freeze of freedom of expression in a way to not incur in being banned from the digital platform and in that way to continue to post our opinions and points of views. This new Canadian law mirrors in several aspects the German Network Enforcement Law, or NetsDG, that already had several problems like the takedown of non-illegal material, for example of satirical content. So as you can see, dear listener, we, the ones that like to be and to participate in a marketplace of ideas and in the arena of discussion regarding politics, could be dealing with a very serious problem, and that is how to maintain a vibrant, nuanced, and sometimes even a little bit rude discussion in political issues, but not being a part of a big brother environment with the suppression of speech, opinions and ideas. Before I bring you Professor Teresa, allow me to again share a personal history. I promise I won't do this too often, dear listener. When I was finishing my master's dissertation, I thought it would be a good idea to warn my advisor that an important point that I was going to make in the conclusion was based on a public announcement at the end of a pornographic movie from 1982. That movie is called Brief Affair. The first time I heard this public announcement was in fact in a music from a band from Scotland called Boards of Canada. I know it's a little complicated, but stay with me. The song is called One Very Important Thought. Boards of Canada, what they did was adapted the public announcement at the end of the pornographic movie and made an entire song about it. The message on the public announcement still reverberates inside me today as it did the last time I listened to it. Judge for yourself. Now that the show is over and we have jointly exercised our constitutional rights, we would like to leave you with one very important thought. Sometime in the future, you may have the opportunity to serve as a juror in a so-called obscenity case. It would be wise to remember that the same people who would stop you from viewing an adult film may be back next year to complain about a book or even a TV program. If you can be told what you can see or read, then it follows that you can be told what to say or think. Defend your constitutionally protected rights. No one else will do it for you. Thank you. Let me say this again. If you can be told what you can see or read, then it follows that you can be told what to say or think. Defend your constitutional protected rights. No one else will do it for you. And this, dear listener, it's words to live by. And now, with no further ado, I bring you Professor Teresa Rodriguez Laheras Balel. I'm here with Teresa Rodriguez Laheras Balel. Teresa, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a great pleasure. Oh, you're here at the right time because there's a lot of things happening on the field of digital platforms, services, speech, debate. So we're going to go into all of that. But before, tell us a little bit how you got interested in this area. Uh, well, I studied law and business. So for me, uh, the business perspective on the legal field has been always uh, a constant, has been always my aspiration. 
I prepared my PhD on online platform in 2005, and I published the book on the legal framework for online platform in 2006, where at that time only big B2B uh, e-marketplaces were the only one well-known in the markets. Now the panorama has changed incredibly, and I have been uh, involved uh, in the two different expert groups at the European Union on artificial intelligence on the one side and online platform economy on the other side. So as a, as a professor of commercial law and digital law mainly, I work on these uh, technological challenges that uh, technology and uh, digital disruption is facing for, for the business law. So you're the right person to have on this podcast and on the show notes, I'm going to put the link to your book that I had the opportunity to take a look. But uh, we're going to go a little more outside before we even talk about platforms. And that is, you mention often, and that is a very interesting uh, topic of conversation, what is called a digital society. So what do you mean by that? And go a little bit into what are the social, educational, cultural uh, dynamics of that digital society? Yeah, I like to uh, to describe digital society using a, what I think is a beautiful metaphor, because I, I see the digital society not simply as a society that has to face the challenges of incorporating technology. It's more than that. I think that for the first time in the history of the humankind, we live in a society that is literally duplicated, in the sense that we live in two different worlds at the same time the physical world and the digital world. And so we have to coexist with all the digital opportunities and to incorporate and accommodate our uh, traditional life to these uh, technological opportunities, to these technological new architectures and scenarios. So for me, everything is challenged by this digital society because we have to make our life compatible with these two world society, we, uh, we have the opportunity and the, uh, probably the, uh, the lack to live in. This is very interesting and, and it goes a little bit into a philosoph philosophical question, which is not either your field or mine of study, but I'm going to challenge you to go a little deeper on this, because when we talk about this duplicated world and the need for us to be able to navigate uh, both separately but, but together, there's a lot of conversation today about people not being ready for this. We are not ready as a species to have this kind of dupli duplication of worlds. What is? What are your thoughts on that? You're totally right because I see this duplicated world also as a mirror. So I think that um, we, as a civilization, as a society, as human beings. For the first time in our history, we have a mirror in front of us. For example, uh, the, uh, all the, the advances in artificial intelligence, all the idea related to robotics, all the question about uh, electronic person, in a way is uh, making us reconsider how we are and probably how we could be as a species. And because of that, it's extremely challenging for us to live in this duplicated world because the physical world is clearly determined by the place and the time. So we are animals, we are creatures in this, in this world. So we have to follow the rules of nature. 
we have limitation of time, we have limitation of place. But when we live in the digital world, a lot of opportunity opened to our uh, in our eyes, now in front of us. And uh, that means that we have a lot of opportunities to change and decide how we can be in the future. That is why it's so challenging. And that is why it's, in, it's indeed true that some people believe that we are not ready as a society, we are not ready as communities, we are not ready as, uh, as human beings. Those are fantastic points and I would love to stay here, but uh, I asked you to come to the podcast because we're going to go a little more into the political process. And one thing that you mentioned, which connects nicely to what we're going to discuss next, which is polarization, misinformation, disinformation, and that is before the internet age, the public debate was the square. It was the cafe and you being a Spaniard and me being Portuguese, we do know about that, having those uh, talks while we're having a nice cup of coffee or a, a nice cold beer. And then this thing moved completely to this duplicated world, which is the digital world. And with that, it brought all the dangers that, first of all, there was more of mechanisms to try to stop them and now it's way way harder so let it, let's get it a little bit into that what do you think it is the status right now of political debate on digital platforms i i see that um political platforms and in general social networking they are creating at least three dangers for the uh, public opinion and the political speech in general first i think that they are simplifying too much the political speech and the political debate. So they are trivializing and making the speech simple and banal to a certain extent. The second danger is that they are polarizing because of this combination of uh, algorithm that um, create um, ideological silos. So this radica radicalization and polarization of uh, the speech is clearly enhanced and aggravated by this algorithm-driven uh, mechanism of the social network. And the third, in my opinion, the third danger is that because I believe that we are living in a what I call omnimetric society, a society that relies too much on numbers. So we rely too much on the number of followers we have, the number of likes we have received. So numbers has become the most important credibility factor that we rely on. And in my opinion, that is the reason, the main reason why fake news and misinformation has become such a tremendous problem in social networks because we are not relying on the substantive credibility of the message. We are relying too much on the number of likes and followers and retweets of a particular message. And that is extremely difficult to combat against. Those are three points that each one of them would be a podcast on itself. It's very interesting <laughs> the expression you use as 
Omnimetric Society. I remember seeing Jack Dorsey talking with a particular group on Silicon Valley, and he was saying that one of the things that he regretted was the like button on Twitter, because the like button exactly gives that <laughs> bias that you have a lot of likes, so it looks like your message is a very, it's a very important or a very accurate one, and it isn't at all. <laughs> so as, as we have these three points that you're mentioning, tri trivializing, polarizing, uh, paying way too much attention to what other people are validating our opinions, our political opinions are, so when we are here, when we are at this moment, is there a turning point? Is there some moment that you think that, and using the uh, famous article by Persley, can democracy survive the internet if we have these echo chambers, if we have all this polarization, all this infighting? And then in, even in the same echo chambers, you have smaller groups that they will start fighting with each other online. And I'm thinking, for example, what happens with what is called the woke culture and uh, identity politics. So as you see this, what are your ideas where this thing is going? So definitely there is always two ways to, to uh, ensure that we are going to survive in the future. The first one is the long run that is always based on education. So if we work on education on values, education on reasoning, education on uh, dialogue instead of a fight, definitely we are clearly uh, laying the foundation for our society in the future. But that is always the long run. And that um, is extremely fragile and vulnerable because we need to ensure that these efforts are not systematically boycotted by other uh, misinformation, fake news, and other attacks from this uh, extremely dynamic uh, digital society that we, we are creating. So can we maybe rely in the medium run, in the, in the short term, can we rely on regulation? That is maybe a, a fascinating and very attractive question because if we can regulate social network in a way that ensure a perfect balance between freedom of speech, uh, and on the other side, protection of interest, including definitely ensuring a democracy and ensuring a sound and reason public opinion, that would be definitely uh, an effort that should be done. So maybe, and I, I definitely have faith on that, uh, we should rely on regulation, on the legal framework, in order to guarantee that democracy is always sustained by a public opinion that is free, that is varied, that is diverse, and that is well-funded in, in values and principle. We're going to get into regulation next, but some examples of education. Um, NGOs are working on that on the field. Uh, for example, the government of Estonia and also from Finland, they do a tremendous work at the junior level. So like, for example, high school and even in Estonia, way before that, almost in kindergarten, to teach children how to deal with the online world, and both from threats, but also from accepting different opinions and being able to get involved into debates and also the European Union which does that education work. So let's talk about regulation and uh, I'm gonna uh, appeal to the privilege of being the host here in the podcast. Teresa, as she mentioned, she has a PhD on uh, online platforms. Myself, I have a master's uh, thesis <laughs> also on that particular topic. 
uh, there's a lot of things happening in the European Union, in the United States. So let's go one by one. And that is, first of all, how can we have smart regulations? For example, how can we define the market? And in here, we're not talking about just the market of buying stuff on Amazon or, you know, calling a car with Uber. We're talking about, again, the digital platforms. How can we define this? Give us your thoughts on that. Yes, that's a, it's a great question because when we talk about market, that has been probably the reason why so far we have been um, considering platform essentially at electronic marketplaces in a market. And that has been the reason why the most uh, efficient, definitely, but the most um, recognized or, or the most uh, common um, regulatory strategy implemented to regulate platform has been antitrust or competition law. Because initially, initially platforms were considered purely market. They were purely service provider providing services and product in a competitive market. So the regulation uh, should be there just to oversight, supervise, and guarantee that competition was not distorted by this platform. By at the, but at the moment, my, my thesis is a little bit different. If we believe that we are living in a duplicated society, in a duplicated world, indeed, platforms are part of this new society. And platforms are indeed more than mere market for services and product. They are digital communities. They are trying to create digital communities. What that means, means that these platforms try to create or even emulate a traditional legal system. That is the reason why when you join a platform, you are accepting certain rules and code of conduct, exactly as you have the law in your country. There are mechanisms to supervise the compliance of this code. There is also a mechanism to generate reputation, rankings, ratings, other reputational mechanisms. And there are also the possibility to resolve and solve dispute within the platform. So if we assume that platforms are more than simply market, the regulation has to be very, very smart. Why? Because we are regulating communities. And regulating communities required a very much sophisticated approach uh, other than uh, antitrust law. That is the point exactly where we are. How we regulate the power of the platform to regulate their own communities. That is exactly, in my opinion, the great challenge we have to face now at the moment. And let me ask you a more detailed question. So when you say that we're regulating communities and platforms are more than just a way of transaction as a market, how do you react then when you see news like, for example, the Department of Justice in the United States filing a suit against Google for antitrust? Or, for example, when we had in 2010 the European Commission also probing antitrust violations by Google? Because in a way, and we are liberals, of course, so there's a gray area in here that we always have to be aware of. But on the other hand, there could be a, a monopoly. They, the community can suffer because of that. So do you have, do you have yes. a, a solution for that? Yes, it's, it's exactly. You are completely right. When we use antitrust law, and all these examples illustrate how antitrust or competition law has been the weapon of the uh, regulator to combat this monopolistic or oligopolistic um, providers or platform, the problem with antitrust law is that essentially 
is an exposed regulatory reaction. So that means that we need to observe the market and wait until the situation becomes or turn out anti-competitive. When that happened, there are already many damages that has been caused. Many damages that are affecting cultural diversity, that are affecting uh, discrimination, that are affecting uh, public opinion, that are affecting, for example, hate speech. So the, the competition is only the end of the problem. That is the reason why I believe that we are in a moment where a combination of ex-ante and ex-post regulation might be considered. When I say regulation, I'm not talking about intrusive or very invasive regulation in the market, not at all. Just to take into account in advance, uh, what should be the general principle, the general standards that this platform should comply with, instead of waiting until they become so big that they are creating purely anti-competitive problems? What happened before? Can we really encourage this platform to create their own communities, but in a perfect compliance with this basic principle core element that we consider um, pillars of our particular society? That would be probably a good solution at the moment. But it looks to me as a careful observer that if you ask Google or Facebook or Twitter to do that, and ask them nicely, they won't do it. So th there's got to be a system that will force them a little bit of a, a, against their will. Yes, and if that happened, we have essentially, essentially, not only, but two possible approach. The first one is uh, compulsory or mandatory rules. So due platform, you have to comply with the following rules. The problem with that is that we, we have to be in a position to be extremely clear in what kind of rules we want them to comply with. And that is not, in my opinion, so easy. The other possibility, that, that is something that I like very much from commercial law approach, we can use liability as a calibrating mechanism. Why liability? Because if we allocate properly liability, we are allocating effectively incentive for platform to react in the direction we want. So what I'm trying to say is at the moment, as you know very well, we have a, a model that is called safe harbor, according to which platforms and other digital intermediaries, they are exempted from any liability related to the digital content or the activity of the users. So they are not, in general, liable for that. So what happens if we start to consider that they might be liable in certain cases, for example, in relation to hate speech, in relation to illicit activities? How, how can we use liability as an incentive for them to take proactive measures and control and guarantee that these ideological silos are not too, too deep, that this hate speech is controlled, that this fake news has been removed. Of course, that is not an easy answer, because if we allocate liability wrongly, or this liability is too strong, probably the platform start to overreact. And then we have exactly the opposite result that we are looking for. That is, they are intervening or interfering in the speech, in the opinion, in the uh, activities of the user. So the balance is extremely delicate and it's not definitely easy to, to find.
This is the thing, one of the things that caught my attention the most at this moment when we talk about uh, the, pol the political ecosphere surviving the internet. As we are talking, the, we already know some of the details about the Future Digital Services Act from the European Union. And one of the things that is mentioned in that Digital Services Act, it's to replace the e-commerce directive. And as you mentioned, there's a safe harbor on that particular directive. Yes. Now, as you were saying, if we, if we pressure too hard, if we try to make too much regulations and too much uh, systems of control, then the platforms will say, okay, we will censor everything from the start and then we'll see whatever you know comes from that and we'll accept it and publish it. And that has a terrible effect, which is calling the chilling effect, which is people will say, I'm not going to post my opinion. I'm not going to say what I think because not only the platform can control that, but also I can be suspended yes. or my account yes. could be deactivated. So with that, at the same time, Teresa, and I'm going to throw it to you now, there is this pressure in governments, in the European Union, in the platforms to control this information, to cons control conspiracy theories, uh, to control a, a content that it could be from not only extremists, but even terrorists. So you were saying we need to find an equilibrium. So let's go a little bit on that, how we can find that equilibrium. Yes, I, I think that we could manage to distinguish different thresholds of um, uh, seriousness, of um, uh, gravity of that particular uh, situation that we want to prevent and we want to stop. So let's consider, for example, that we clearly identify that there are a number of situation activities or content that we consider clearly and universally contrary to our values. If that is the threshold that we consider the most radical one, this threshold must be subject to a proactive and um, voluntarily filtering and monitoring by the platform. For example, that is the case of the situation in France with this uh, terrible uh, event uh, with uh, Samuel Paty, the terrorist attack. In this case, that could be a situation where we consider that certain messages are notorious are conspicuous, are clearly and evident uh, against the values of a particular society and say, okay, in relation to these particular activities, the platform should intervene and they have the right or even they have the obligation to remove that particular digital content. Then there is a second threshold where the level of um, discussion and the level of, if you wish, um, uh, legal scrutiny that we need to assess whether that particular activity is legal or illegal is more complex, is not so evident. And in this case, I don't think that the platform should intervene without a prior notification by the, uh, the person who is affected by that. That could be the case, for instance, of uh, intellectual property rights or other infringement where it's not obvious and it probably is not advisable at all that the platform decide this text is a plagiarism or this message is a copy of that particular copyrighted text. So that could be the second threshold where the platform has only the duty to intervene, as we have in the, uh, in the safe harbor, when has been duly notified. And then we could have a third threshold where we are in an area of legality, 
But it could be possible, why not? We would, would see what happened, that a platform could be specialized, let's see, in a, a certain level of uh, tolerance. No, for example, we want to create a platform that is extremely respectful with uh, this right. Therefore, we don't want to have any specific message that is talking about political aspect because we want to have more a family-oriented uh, platform. So can I restrict more, even more, the level of tolerance of that platform on the basis of the contract? I don't see a problem. And definitely that would be the right of the platform to decide. I'm not going to accept any comment related to politics because I want to have a platform more family-centered and just avoiding any kind of uh, possible fight or possible um, tension between the user. So that could be a possibility to identify three thresholds of activities and content that are in different level of seriousness and um, uh, risk of attack of fundamental interest and right of our societies. And I will add one more, uh, not layer, but something that runs in parallel, and that is transparency of the processes. Um, how was it decided? How can I uh, make a complaint? How was my complaint analyzed? Was the tests, the thresholds that you mentioned, was those thresholds ones, the ones that were essentially accepted, were the ones defined by the platform? So a lot of work to do. Um, and talking about a lot of things to do, we have so much to talk about, Teresa, because we haven't got time to go into regulation of algorithms, which is another headache. But for now, I'm going to ask you, how can people follow your work? And you mentioned that you were also working with an expert panel at the European uh, Union. So tell us a little more. How can people get involved, <laughs> know about this and participate in the process? So there are first, as usual, in the context of the European Union, several consultation calls that are opened. So uh, people, citizens, uh, organizations are welcome to contribute and participate in this consultation process. For example, in relation to the DSA, uh, the Digital Services Act, for example. On the other hand, there are a number of uh, expert groups that are more focused on, uh, more focused to experts, professional or organization directly involved in some of the uh, aspects we are dealing with, such as algorithm, liability of uh, artificial intelligence, platform. So there are uh, on regular basis calls for uh, becoming member of these uh, expert groups. That would be another possibility. And as usual, webinars and conferences and uh, also very, very sound um, dialogue and conversation in social network that sometimes there are also very, very good conversation on social network. Do you have a digital uh, footprint that can people follow you? Are you on Twitter? Um, I'm usually uh, I work with uh, LinkedIn. Okay. So that would be the, uh, the, the social network where I am uh, more present and uh, I regularly uh, contribute and, and check. I'm going to put all these links on the show notes of the podcast. Teresa, this was like drinking a cold um, glass of water after walking through the <laughs> desert for a long time. So good to talk to you and, and so good for us to um, talk about and, and not only talk about it, but to confront these uh, challenges because they're here and we have to face them. Otherwise, this thing's just going to overwhelm us, overwhelm the society. Uh, just for a little quick note, there is this uh, documentary called The Social Dilemma 
And it got to a point that people were saying that some of the experts from Silicon Valley, they were saying things like, if we don't stop this, there's going to be civil wars. If we don't stop this, democracy will not survive. And I'm looking at that. I'm thinking, oh, we have to we have to do things and we have to do things now. And it was so good to have you on the podcast. We uh, definitely should do more about this. So thank you again for being on the podcast. And I hope to have to have you back soon. Thank you very much. It has been indeed a fantastic conversation. It has been extraordinary to, to be talking with you on these fascinating challenges that we have in front of us. Thank you very much. I'm back. Just a reminder that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. And if you feel like it, give us a five-star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And this is all for now. I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast It's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily...